Welcome to the Healthy Gospel Church Podcast, a podcast where we explore all aspects of church life while also shining a spotlight on good practice. My name is David Meredith, I'll be your host. Thank you for joining us today. If you like what you hear, please help these algorithms out and share it as far and wide as you can. So let me introduce uh, Rosaria Butterfield. Rosaria is really well known. She is author of several books. Uh, the most famous one uh, is The Secret Thought of an Unlikely Convert, and she may be touching that a little bit. But today I want to focus on her latest book. It's been a, a little bit in uh, The Gospel Comes with a House Key. Rosaria, welcome. Thank you so much, David. I'm honored to be part of the the new relaunch too. What a what a privilege! I'll try not to blow it. Okay. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. <laughs> this is a, a podcast based in Scotland. Tell our listeners: Have you ever been in Scotland? Oh, not yet, but I hope to. So, find some speaking event that I need to go to, and I would love to come. Well, we we, we need to get a good old uh, American Presbyterian back to the motherland, to Scotland. My Rosario, husband would well, say the same. Yeah. <laughs> Welcome. Well, let, let's chat about this book. Okay. Tell me, um, first of all, what, is, what sparked it all? What's the big idea behind it? Right, right, right. Well, two big ideas. One is that um, over the course of my, my, you know, two decades, two plus decades as a Christian, people would often come to me and say, you know, how did you get here? How did somebody like you get here? And usually what they meant is how does an out lesbian feminist activist tenured professor at a tier two research university who hates the Bible and believes that it is morally corrupt end up, you know, or a foreign Presbyterian pastor's wife, um, happily joyful with kids, homeschooling, like, you know, were you lobotomized? Were you dropped on your, hey, like, what happened? Um, so that's that's one part of the story. And, and the answer to that is, like a lot of people, I mean, probably millions of people, I came to faith because I had a neighbor who was a Christian who took me in, shared the Bible, shared the gospel for years and years and years. I probably had 500 meals at his house. I, I stopped counting. I mean, you know, really. Um, he brought the church to me before he brought me to the church. And because of that, and, and because of his own insistence, Pastor Ken Smith, who's still alive and still, you know, an evangelist in so many ways, insistence that I start to read the Bible on my own, what happened was that the Bible got to be bigger inside me than I. And I can't explain much more than that. I mean, I can talk a little bit, but so I came to faith because there was a Christian neighbor who met me and wouldn't let go of me. And I learned from that, that Christians don't throw people away. So that's one answer to the question. The other answer to the question is I learned as a covenantal uh, reformed Presbyterian, that's the, that, that hospitality isn't just a, the personal giftedness of, you know, the Smiths or the Butterfields, you know, or the Merediths or, or anybody else, that our houses are actually an outpost of the church. And as a covenantal church, that means that 
our, our, our babies are welcome, our babies are baptized, our children are welcome. Um, hospitality is a little bit of a, it's a little bit of a worldview clinic for your children, but we're not all alone here. It's not like, oh, Rosaria has this special gift, you know, like she, she likes to knit socks and make casseroles, which I actually do like to do both things, but, but you know, it's, it, that's not it. it. This is an outpost of the church. And therefore, I have the covering of my elders, I have the support of my brothers and sisters, and that's part of how a conversation, which could be very, very, which actually, let's just say it, it is very awkward. You know, it just is. It's awkward to go from talking about, you know, sports and cancer and bad knees to putting a Bible in front of somebody's face and saying, oh, now it's time for family devotions. Oh, and we're going to sing a psalm too. You know, that's awkward. But it's not so awkward when that's part of the practice, part of the pattern, and you've got all your brothers and sisters there doing the same thing. Wow. I mean, you know, so far there's about 10 different sub-subjects. I'm sorry. From our first I'm sorry. Great. I mean, an expression we hear a lot in the UK is, you know, people unpack the Bible. But I'm sensing that perhaps just as accurate saying that the Bible unpacks us. Absolutely. And that's what happened to you. Linked to this, I mean, your your background is LGBT. Um, there's a lot of LGBT polemic about. You were one, not through polemic, but through hospitality. What does that tell you? Well, two things. It tells me something historical, and it tells me something theological. So which would you like me to start with? It's up to you. You go. Okay. Let's start with the historical, because... I have been a biblically married woman for almost as long as I have been a Christian. So when I talk about myself as a lesbian, it's not like I praise God for this too. It's not even like I remember what that feels like. Um, so, so lesbianism is part of my biography. It's not part of my nature. And, 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 and theologically, that would have been true the minute that I was justified. The minute I was justified, I was still living with my lesbian lover. I was still a practicing lesbian. But even at that moment, lesbianism was against my nature because Christians have a new nature. Now, at that moment, I had a new nature and old patterns. And that's when the war began. So historically, when Ken Smith met me as a lesbian activist, Lesbianism um, and the whole LGBTQ matrix was not an it was not an act of idolatry yet. It was a political movement in the United States. 2015 was really the year that LGBTQ became um, the sacrifice your children to Moloch moments, because that was the year that both gay marriage and then with gay marriage. Um, the insistence that LGBTQ is a civil right, uh, a federal civil right. And so what that means in, in a United States context is that any pastor meeting with any lesbian today has a much harder go than Ken Smith did, because he would not only need to share the gospel encourage me to read the Bible for myself, because that's really important. You know, you, you, you come to Christ because you, you realize that Jesus is who he says he is, uh, not because it seems like a good deal, like an insurance policy. Um, but then also that pastor would really have to go to bat with the wolves that would have had their claws in me 
So historically, it was a different context. And theologically, what, what we need to remember is that if you share the gospel with someone like the person I used to be, and I come to Christ, I had better be coming to a church that knows how to practice church discipline. Because I'm not just tracking in bad ideas. I'm tracking in wolves with claws on me. And are you ready, you pastor of the person, you know, are you ready to actually deal with that? If you believe that personal piety is a good response to religious liberalism, you are a fool and you will be eaten alive by the wolves I'm going to bring with me. So those are the two things that we need to just you know, no, right up front, you know, here's, and I, and the, and I think an analogy might be like this. Um, th this is a war. The, the gospel is on a, it's on a collision course with this idea of sexual orientation as a category of personhood. Genesis 1, 27, 28 puts it very clearly. Biblically speaking, a person is an image bearer of a holy God with a soul that will last forever born ontologically male and female for creational purposes. That's what a person is, which means, which means biblically speaking, there's no such thing as a gay person. A gay may have been how I felt, but it never was who I was or who I am because it's not an ontological category, but that's the collision course. And when you're on a collision course, you need to understand that this is a battle. This is a, these are battles for souls. This isn't just a nice tea party where, gosh, maybe Rosaria is going to, you know, like Jesus, or maybe she's going to like Buddha or, you know, no, 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 no. This is a war. And in war, borders close. And there are a lot more borders open to Ken Smith and Rosaria than Rosaria Champagne in 1997 than there are for Kent Butterfield, my husband, and our lesbian neighbors today. And Christians would be, again, you would be a fool to not see that, to not know that, and to pretend that, no, well, you know, it's always the same. Well, the gospel is always powerful, yes, but you are located here. And to not know that you are in this particular war and to not know that certain borders are closed, Satan would love for you to, you know, hyper-spiritualize that. Okay, really helpful. Right, let's talk a little bit about radical hospitality. It's a phrase okay. you use in the book. Tell our viewers, tell me, what is radical hospitality as opposed to non-radical, benign right. hospitality? Right, right, right. I don't know if you, you've thought about this, but sometimes um, with when book titles, the only book title that I really wanted was uh, The Gospel Comes with a House Key. And the reason is because over the course of the years, as I would be maybe a public speaker or just go visit a friend, I would have people hold up their house keys and say, do you remember when you and Kent took me in? Um, I never gave you this house key back because it's my, it's my confidence. You know, I look at it and I remember how God used that moment. And, and it was really funny. And at some point, Kent, Kent and I were like, wow, we've got just lots of house keys out there, <laughs> you know? Um, yeah, um, and, and, and so what I, what I wanted people to realize is that for, for some of us, for those of us who come to faith 
as first-generation Christians. The, the church, you are our family. And, and Kent and I have always lived that way. Kent and I both came to faith, um, and then for years and years and years, until our two youngest children came to faith, we were the only Christians in our, in our actual biological family. So if the church was in our family, we would have no aunts and uncles, brothers and sisters, cousins, grandmas and grandparents, you know, nieces and nephews. We wouldn't have any of that. So the gospel comes with housekey is my way of saying, church, you're a family. And, and some people are, are really, really serious ragamuffins, you know, like myself. And I just need you to give me a house key. I need to know that you're the people I'm going to eat dinner with and you're the people I'm going to go on vacation with. And there's, you know, and so Kent and I always live that way. There's never a Christmas or an Easter or a Thanksgiving where the doors are wide open and all of our churches welcome, especially our singles or our people who are struggling with various issues. But then we go out and we find other lonely people and we bring them, we seek the stranger. We've had prisoners um, who are on furlough. We've had, you know, any neighbor that we know is kind of off kilter, you know, all of that. So what's radical. So anyway, when Crossway published the book, what they thought was, they thought that was radical. They thought that was radical and we thought it was ordinary. And that's why you got the, uh, radical ordinary hospitality, because what we ended up doing at a certain point in our neighborhood, um, and I think this is the other context, at a certain point, um, one day, in fact, it was, you know, 2016, um, May, our neighbor, um, our, yes, Hank, our reclusive, lonely, quirky neighbor uh, ended up um it, it ended up being revealed that he was running a meth lab out of his house. And we were his only known friends, which did not ingratiate us to our other neighbors. And that became the context for Kent and I to start to practice hospitality almost every night, inviting our neighbors in for um, a meal and in some ways a theological think tank where the gospel was proclaimed and um, proclaimed and proclaimed and where children in the neighborhood came to hear um, what happened at Hank's house rocked our little neighborhood because it made people have to think about who Hank really is and who we really are. And so Kent and our elders capitalized in some ways on this crisis and we opened the doors wide open and we said, Christians look at life with their eyes open. Evil is real and so is grace. Let's look at this together with our Bibles open and our neighbors, including our atheist neighbors, our unbelieving neighbors, they started to come. And at the same time, we were committed to not letting go of Hank. And so our ministry changed the day that I woke up at 6 a.m. to the, you know, police at the door, you know, and that's also when you're very thankful that you are wearing very modest pajamas. Let me just say, let me put it right out there, you know, exactly, you know, you, it is because it really, it just, it exploded wide open. 
And we realized, well, who else but the Christians, the, who else but the conservative Bible-believing Christian family across the street is going to make any redemptive sense out of this? For everybody, ourselves, our children. Um, our children had gotten to know Hank as a very quirky man, but a kind man. You know, what would it, what would it mean if we just said, oh, you know, evil, evil company corrupts, that's it. We're not dealing with that guy anymore. Um, that the lesson that would have taught our children is that faith in Jesus Christ uh, is is very small, and sin is very big, and sin is so much bigger than the gospel that we have to keep our gospel in this little protective box. It can't possibly be exposed to this situation across the street. It won't. It it won't be big enough. But that is not what we did. Um, the neighbors were not. Um, they didn't, they thought we were fools for being friends with Hank. And so it also became a very long conversation in our neighborhood about gossip, addiction, um, and what it means to come to Christ and just say, I sinned. I can't, I, I can't, dear Lord, I cannot clean this mess up, but I repent and I'm going to put my faith and trust in you. And we're going to start together today and it's going to be a new day. What does that mean? And so we had barbecues and nightly dinners. We had, um, we opened also the, our home pretty wide open at that point for the grieving kids in the neighborhood the singles at church that we felt like, hey, maybe we've neglected them. Um, so we learned a great deal and we wanted to write this book so that people just knew that we believe that uh, hospitality is a one way to bring the church to the, 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 the edges of, 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 of the world. And then by God's grace, even if you have to throw people over your shoulders, we've been known to do that, get those people to a solid, good church where they too can. Yeah, let me just, just keep, keep the thing spinning. We all of us have only got so much emotional, social capital. Um, you know, I think of, you know, John the Baptist said, I am not the Christ. You know, some things are, are above my, my pay grade. Surely, Rosaria, there, there's a limit to the amount of giving you can get. Do you guys not find that some nights you've got to close the door because your, your capital has, has, has gone? Yes, yes. But by God's grace, the Lord kept fueling us during that crisis. So this is not how we have lived every day since then but i will tell you i will tell you that after that crisis came the covid crisis and my neighbor donna who's in the book she's my weekly she's my my neighborhood prayer partner she came to me and she said i'm so glad we lived through the meth lab because we're going to need to open this one wide open too and sure enough we did we spent sort of the first week disinfecting and like boundaries and then we realized wow we have people, we have singles in our church who are suicidal. We have kids in the neighborhood who have no place to go. I mean, quite frankly, our house during the COVID shutdown looked like, I looked like the little old lady who lived in a shoe. I mean, I, I, 
you know, I haven't been arrested in my apron, but if that happened, I would have used it as the book, you know, picture for the next book. And my, and my neighbor said the same thing. I'm so glad that we're used to your house looking like this because this would have been scary. But what we were saying to people is, you know what, actually people are going to probably die of loneliness faster than COVID. So uh, we're going to, we're going to take it. So we took in children who were now all of a sudden at school on their computers, but their parents were working. We took in, you know, people who were depressed. Um, and I don't know. And actually we didn't get COVID until after, after all that ended. So how's that? Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. It seems, so, I mean, I don't know if you've heard of Brie where Francis Schaeffer had in the seventies. It always seems that your house was a kind of neighborhood Brie where, you know, folk come in and spoke of worldview, philosophy, the nature of evil and good. Mm-hmm. Um, how do yeah. you, I mean, I don't know if there's a difference between America and, and Scotland. We're just not as open as that. We're quite quiet people. Did that happen? Did all these big discussions happen naturally? I mean, it does seem to me that you and Ken are naturally gifted as facilitators. Would you say that is true? Well, we, we tend to provoke people without even intending it. I think that is true. But I think we also, as first-generation Christians, we come to this really hungry to see people in faith. When when our neighborhood kids, when the neighborhood kids would just come over in droves and we would be having these gospel conversations, quite frankly, I look at these 10-year-old boys who hadn't washed their hands before they reached their grubby little hands in for another role. I saw that boy and I thought, this could be my future pastor. I, I, better, I better teach him right right now. Because that's what we believe. See, we look at that grubby little boy and we say, you could be my future pastor. So if this is my time to talk with you, this is it. This, see, this, this table is a worldview apologetics classroom for the children and an opportunity for the adults to ask honest questions and have them actually answered without a bunch of liberal fluff and without a bunch of therapeutic nonsense. And so what we have discovered is that in spite of what you might learn from social media, grown-ups can actually disagree and then the next day share irises from their garden. And children bear the burden of all of this chaos and they have good questions. I mean, we would try to put our children to bed. You know, we would try to be reasonable people. But I can't tell you how many times I have come back and discovered that my children have, you know, brought their pillows and blankets and they had fallen asleep under the table, listening to their parents beg their neighbors to put their faith and trust in Jesus. So it's not about entertainment. Often other people would bring food. I have come home and had somebody have, you know, literally taped a wad of cash on my door that just said, thank you for doing this. Keep it up. I can't tell you who I am. So, uh, you know, we very much felt like, especially during that season, we had to face the question, is there hope in the gospel for all of us? Or is there not? See, because if the gospel is just for like cleaned up, nice people, 
I don't need it. You don't need it. It's not going to, it certainly wouldn't help, help me. So that was what we were, that, that's, it really became a think tank at that point. And I would say, you know, Kentus, obviously there's a lot of willingness to be somewhat confrontational, you know, confrontational with a bowl of minestrone soup. There's a lot of that going on in our house um, that Kent is a pastor is, you know, that's a very, that's the power source of this house. And also, but the, the fact that even before this, from the, the first night of our marriage, Kent and I have, have had family devotions every single night. There's a couple of things there. Number one, do you have to be smart to do this? Because, you know, you know what theodicy is. You're familiar with the Western canon. You know, right. you, can, you can spot a Neoplatonist a mile away. Um, can ordinary, just non-educated folk have big conversations? Right, yeah, yeah. Well, you know, that's the, that's the thing, isn't it? That um, we need to realize that the gospel, that the Lord uses our weaknesses more than our strengths. So, um, you know, I would not have said before that my strength would have been, um, you know, I don't know, not knowing how many people were coming for dinner or, you know, those just kind of the just kind of the basic foot on the floor realities of hospitality. But the Lord is going to use your weaknesses as well as your strengths. But again, this is an outpost of the church, the hospitality and the conversation isn't just driven by Kent and Rosaria. When we had a mob of angry neighbors, Kent made sure that all of our, you know, elders, their families, uh, you know, the D, all, you know, we, we would have the church over. I mean, Kent's rule is two on one, two Christians for every one angry atheist. Um, so because it's an outpost, it isn't about your resources. You know, at a certain point, we all tap out. So if, a, if, if certain houses are outposts, the question really are things like location, parking, uh, you know, a ramp, steps, uh, you know, a, a handrail for older people. I mean, it, it's not about just the resources of the mom and the dad. It's the church. And it's the church having had experience doing this together. It's the scrappy church. And here's, here's the deal. If your church has not done outdoor evangelism, it might be really hard to pull this off. You might feel embarrassed. If you've never done open air preaching and had people throw stuff at you, this might be really awkward. You know, if, if you are part of a broad evangelical church where all problems are farmed out to parachurch ministries. And if every event is at the church, you're like, I'm sorry, I can't talk to you right now. I have small group. You are, this is going to, you're going to be an inpatient care. If you came to my house, I would drive you crazy. Now, are you the only guys that are doing it? Pastor and wife, or is it infectious? Are other folk in the church, you know, picking up in this idea? Yeah. Yeah. I have stories I couldn't put in the book because it would scare people. Okay. I have, I couldn't put them in the book because it, it, you know, you would, you would be terrified, but I will just tell you that, um, I have seen God's grace in the lives of the most unlikely people, me first of all, and then so many after that, and so of my children. 
so have my children. And we've also seen hardship. You know, let me say this. Um, we are a church that practices church discipline. That's painful. I spent two years having the elder who served me communion every day be excommunicated for adultery. That's painful. So there are inside conversations and outside conversations. It's not that we were doing this because, boy, our church was just so strong and everything was great. No, but my husband is courageous and faithful, and so are our elders. And God gave us grace upon grace. And in spite of our weaknesses, he showed us that God uses sin sinlessly. Has this impacted the church? You know, I don't want to be crass, but has the church grown through this? Well, you know what? It shrank and then it grew. I mean, I, I, you know, like, I, I, right? Because church discipline, you know, that's a scary thing, right? It, because church discipline, I think sometimes through people... Through hospitality, I mean, through, through your hospitality. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I'll tell you, a number of churches grew through our hospitality. Not, I, we would... Um, um, when we think of Christian hospitality, it, I mean, when we practice hospitality, although this is an outpost of the First Reformed Presbyterian Church, as I'm practicing hospitality with my neighbors, I'm not necessarily creating a church. So we've had many people, you know, come to Christ and move and uh, or come to Christ and stay in their Baptist church or, you know, I mean, so so it's 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 um, so yes and no. Okay, so, so whilst this had an impact on your church, it's also had wider, shall we say, kingdom implications. Oh, yeah. We have no control over where the seed goes. It, the wind blows it over all. It's interesting. I mean, a lot of Christian couples, families here who have like even dinner parties with ask non-Christian friends in, they're sometimes even embarrassed to say grace. But you guys, you go the whole nine yards. You 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 have your family worship as usual. You read the Bible. Uh, you you sing a psalm. Is it a cringe factor, or how do you feel? Your guests right. are they welcome? Yeah. To join yeah. Do they do they not have an option? You know, sometimes when you have a well-established pattern, even when that pattern causes you a certain amount of discomfort, there's a momentum to it. You might even use a sports analogy. If you're used to being an athlete, you stand there on the front, on the you know on the start line of the race, and you know it's going to be painful. But you've done it a hundred times before, and you're going to do it again. You're not afraid of the pain because you know that there's a way to get past it. There's a funny moment in the screw tape letters where the head demon is saying to his nephew, screw tape saying to his nephew, you know, these weak Christians, they think we're never going to leave them alone. It's the strong ones that know that after a while we just give up on them, you know, and, and I'm not saying that Satan gives up on you or that you would want to quote that as a, as a truth, but there is a way in which, you know, as a means of grace, Christian, that this is the only way. And there might be a little part of you that wants to be a little bit more socially acceptable and say, is it, Lord, isn't there an easier way? But no, it is the word of God. We believe in the word of God. We are, um, you know, we, the Westminster Confession of Faith, although a subordinate standard, is those are our guardrails. And, you know, I was just in the, I was just in, in this section this morning, chapter 14, by this faith, a Christian believeth to be true, 
whatsoever is revealed in the word for the authority of God himself speaking therein. Why in the world would I think Rosaria's words would be in any way more helpful to my neighbors than the Lord's if I believe chapter 14, section two of the Westminster? Like, I would have to be nuts. And so while there is a certain level of discomfort, there's a momentum to the pattern. And it's a very simple momentum. The kids bring the dishes up to the sink, and then they start passing out the Psalters and the Bibles. And our unbelieving neighbors kind of look at it and say, uh, Kent, what's this? And Kent will say, well, you know, this is you're at my table, and I'm, I'm grateful you're at my table. Uh, this, is how, this is what we do in our house. We've had a hard conversation. We have tried to solve all these problems of meth addiction and uh, you know, danger and the falling house prices from this and da, 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 da. And you know what? We're tired of this. So this is what we do every night. Every night I read a passage of scripture. We sing a psalm, and we pray. And we do that because you know what, folks, these problems are too big for me and they're too big for you too. And we're going to leave it on the throne at the throne of grace. And we're going to see what God does with it. And then somebody will say, and then tomorrow night, you're going to do the whole thing over again. And Kent says, yes, that's right. So any concerns? And usually our unbelieving neighbors have, quite frankly, they have, they are able to articulate the two concerns that all of your covenant children have. You want to know what they are? How long will this take? Is there a covenant children who has not wanted to ask that of dad at the table, right? How long will this take? And the second is, do we all have to pray? And those are great questions. And so after a while, you develop a reputation for this. And even without inviting people, people start showing up. Or you're walking your dog and somebody will say, hey, are you Rosaria? You're the one who, uh, can I, can you pray for, can I come, uh, if I came over, um, would I have to tell you, you know, I mean, it, it, it just, it just became an organic way of meeting people where they're at. And, and I also tell you that I live in North Carolina where the weather, I don't want to, I don't want to make you jealous. I don't want you to, to violate the 10th commandment right now, you are, and all of your listeners, but the weather is beautiful here. And for about nine months of the year, I can host a dinner party outside. And that has helped too. Yeah, we have because, some potential issues there to apply yeah. that to Scotland, absolutely. Now, I think I know the answer to this question, but I want to hear you say it. Has this harmed your kids? I mean, having a house full sometimes of strangers, the good, the bad, the ugly. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, well, first of all, um, all of my children, um, by God's grace, are adopted. And we adopted two older children and then two younger children. And it, the Lord knows my weakness. We probably signed 10 adoptive contracts, but the Lord gave us four, not 10, because he knows we are old and weak. Um, but um, um, our two older children came at the age of 17, five years apart, out of unbelievable circumstances. You tell the story in the book, by the way. The, the, the last I do. But, you know, again, I don't even tell the whole story. Like yeah. what you read in the book was the G-rated version yeah. of what our house looked like. During those seasons, we were not having open hospitality parties because 
that would have been unsafe, both for our neighbors and for our children. Okay. So that's just it. You deal with your house. Our two younger children um, have come to, they've been homeschooled and, and they've been in the church and they've been nurtured and cared for and loved and they have come to Christ and they have seen their, their friends in the neighborhood come to Christ. And often they are asked if I'm speaking and I bring a kid with me, cause they're both teenagers now they're, you know, they're very helpful, you know, uh, older, intelligent, capable brothers and sisters in the Lord. And sometimes at a speaking event, somebody will say, what's it like for the kids? And I'll just point to a kid and say, tell, you know, and they'll talk about how, 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 how grateful they are that if there is a problem in, in, with the kids in the neighborhood, they always knew they could bring their friends home. Uh, it didn't matter if it was Christmas or Thanksgiving. There, the, the table was never set with a strict amount of people. Um, that it really meant a lot to them that their friends' problems were safe with us and that their friends were welcome as they were and that and they learned how to share the gospel in this context. And so, but having said that, I will tell you that I do have very clear rules in my house. One rule is kids do not play in bedrooms ever. We have what's called a ranch house in the United States that's just a long flat house with no stairs and um here bungalow well it could be yes and we just we we carve out half of it but again we have two acres and so my theory is i want to be able to see you outside so the kids have always been real outdoors people and you know we have a backyard full of chickens and a trampoline and uh, you know, and so I would rather deal with, uh, quite frankly, I would rather deal with things like, you know, regular outdoor, you know, knee scrapes and things than anything else that might happen inside. Now, I'm not saying, please don't hear this to think like, I'm so arrogant. I think that Satan couldn't get around that. Of course he can. Um, and so um, Kent especially um, uh, is ex- is very faithful at being mindful of that the children are in some ways covered when we have these big groups, but also don't be so, you know, to be very careful that the children themselves are not playing in bedrooms or child on child abuse is a big, is a big thing that that's not, you know, that's not a small thing, but what, what also is a big thing is that children are themselves abused in homes. Children uh, my, you know, in, in, in all these lovely communities, have deep, deep, hard secrets and problems. And they, they need Christian adults to help them think through it, especially children who are in government schools, which in the United States has simply become a breeding ground for LGBTQ idolatry. Um, we have an outbreak in what's called rapid onset gender dysphoria among 13-year-old girls who want to spend summer break having a double mastectomy and hysterectomy because of this mass hysteria that has been fueled by particular government programs in the United States. In the United States, um, LGBTQ idolatry is not part of sex education, which would allow 
Christian parents to remove that child from that program. It's part of an anti-bullying campaign. So your children are being sacrificed to Moloch when you think they're just learning math and reading. And I'm, I'm serious. It's a very serious thing. I, I talk to parents. I talk to kids. I have parents send, you know, they send their 13 year old girls ask Mrs. Butterfield, you know, so it's become a worldview, hasn't it? You know, a prism through which everything is is is, is defined. Right. Let, let me just let us come into land. Time's flying. I want to end with a couple of really interesting things. You and I are Presbyterians. We believe in covenant. We believe in like our, our children, our covenant children. They're part of the church. We right. revel in baptism. We live in a really individualistic age. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Tell me. What baptism has meant, is there a connection between this hospitality thing, the church, baptism? Absolutely. Absolutely. And in fact, um, I didn't do this with you because you and I are on the same page, but often if I'm, you know, kind of a broad evangelical Baptistic, uh, you know, um, uh, questioner, I have to start with, now, you know, we're a little different and that difference contains a worldview that explains how this happens. When we talk about raising our children in the fear and admonition of the Lord, we're not evangelizing them like they're strangers. Uh, They are part of the covenant. Um, The littlest of the babies and the, and even, even those older, older children who have left the faith we pray for as part of our, covenant. Now, one of the things that means practically is that in our churches, we're all in the same worship service. So the little babies and the teenagers and the moms and dads and the old people, there's no special service with bouncy balls for bouncy children. Um, we have some bouncy children in our church and my husband has developed really good lung capacity for preaching over them. Um, unless there's an act of clear, um, insurrection in the pews, mostly people stay, you know, they stay where, where they are. And, and that creates a culture where children learn some hard truths and they hear some hard truths. It also creates, creates a culture where the dads and the heads of the households and the moms are often replaying the sermon for the kids that afternoon. Um, and so, so that's the practical thing. So that's part of why the idea that there's going to be a lot of adult conversation at the table, but kids are welcome to talk to, but stay on point. That's normal. That's, that's just how they're raised. But in addition to that, we do live in a culture of vile and dangerous individuality where the the you know the modern individual person finding meaning in nothing but himself is considered to be a high value and unfortunately i would say don't want to be too controversial but i i have a history of being controversial on podcasts so why not i would say that churches that are not baptistic and not covenantal run the risk of creating an ethos of that um and that is because you are not considered to be a part of the church. Now, I'm not saying, we are not saying that our baptized children are believers. 
we are saying that they are part of the covenant. And, and I, I would add to that, that, um, you know, the covenants in the, in the old Testament, the gospel's in there, the gospel's in there. So, so the, the gospel is in the creation mandate, the first covenant that God made with man. And when the church wants to kind of extract the gospel from what it means to be made in the image of God, what it means to be made ontologically in in the image of God, what it means that we are born male and female ontologically and for a reason, what it means that we will be male and female in the new Jerusalem and in heaven, like all of that. If you extract the gospel from that and you just kind of have these gospel culture ideas, you're going to have heresy within a generation. And I think that's what we see. Let's just conclude it with one non-controversial issue. Complementarianism. Okay. <laughs> okay. Um, you are a, a convinced, happy complementarian, and yet you've got a ministry. Can you explain what healthy yeah. complement? We're talking about yeah. healthy churches. You know, what, what is a healthy complementarianism, and what's an unhealthy? Right, right, right. Well, I don't think there's anything unhealthy about anything in the Bible, and the Bible is very clear that there are that women are designed for a purpose. Okay. God doesn't design anything for no purpose at all. You know, you'll notice it's, you know, it's only man and woman that fusses over our design, right? The moon doesn't say, Oh, I really want to be the sun. Why aren't I the sun? Why can't I be the sun? I mean, you know, creation, we are, we are the rebellion in that way. So, so I would say, first of all, I, I, we don't, we don't, we don't need to nuance or uh, in any way, you know, apologize for or micromanage the beauty of what it means for woman to be the glory of man and the glory of God and man to be the glory of God and man and woman together to be the um, uh, stewarding and, and filling the earth and there's the gospel right there. So we we, uh, we do not need to be uh, ashamed of that. But what I would say, I think it's always so funny when people think I have a ministry because what I have is a household um, but that my husband kindly has decided I can manage. Actually, Kent, Kent's much better at managing the, the, the checkbook than I am. And so uh, we... We prefer, you know, but but um, but there's not one thing I would do this podcast or anything that isn't done because Kent Butterfield thinks it's a good idea, and which which means that there's a lot of things I don't do because Kent Butterfield does think it's a bad idea. So I, so I don't really have a ministry. I have a household, um, and everything that we do, I mean, everything I do is done because Kent has approved it because I am submitted happily and joyfully to Kent. I mean, I think it's hard. I mean, I think sometimes I probably come across as a very disjointed person in a, in a Christian way, but I've been a Christian for almost as long as I've been biblically married. And so while, while homosexuality and, and all of that and atheism and all of that, it's very much part of my biography it's simply not part of my nature. And I'm grateful for that. I'm grateful that the Lord changes people, that he refines you in that refining fire. And while that's very painful, it's also very, very good. But as a, as a, um, 
I mean, it's one thing to be a complementarian and to be in a Baptist church where you've got, you know, let's say the elders are leading. That to me seems really scary. I'm going to tell you, I'm a complementarian in a Presbyterian context. And that means that at any moment in the given day, I might need to call the cops and call the elders uh, at the same time and call my presbytery. And if I don't like it, I might need to take it to Senator General Assembly. Those are my obligations as a member of the church. And so I what I tell people is if you, you know, yes, be very concerned with abuse in the church, be very concerned with abuse in the world. And a, the best firewall against that is to be a covenant member in good standing of a faithful. Uh, reformed and Presbyterian church, uh, because that's where you are going to be protected. You are a member individually. So we're not a family membership. I will say, since I've used the word abuse, I am very concerned with the way that the modern church defines abuse. Um, so I want, I want us to just remember that the, that the, the, you know, that again, the Bible is sufficient for faith in life and um, abuse. Uh, I, I'm, I'm hearing a number of kind of reinterpretations of abuse, which is difficult. But then on the other hand, you're seeing widespread issues, especially among children that people aren't, aren't actually dealing with. So I'm just saying that's its own, that's its own, you know, uh, you know, rat's nest, as we might say here on this side of the pond. But, um, but being a, a member in good standing of a Bible-believing, Reformed and Presbyterian church gives you many, many layers of protection. Thank you so much. Time has flown by. Um, again, we would urge our listeners to have a go. Read that book. The Gospel Comes with a House Key. Read Rosaria's other book, The Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert. And uh, we look forward to reading Rosaria again and maybe having her over here in the land of the Reformation. Thank you, Rosaria. Listeners, viewers, thank you for staying with us. Uh, we hope you enjoy the podcast. Tell others about it. Uh, engage, go on to Rosaria's website, just Google her if you want to engage with it. You maybe wouldn't have time to engage with a thousand of you, but uh, these are lots and lots of thoughts. Thank you for being with us today. Have a great day. God bless. Mm-hmm.